From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here's your host, Connie Coons. Thank you, Jesse. It is Connie Coons, and you are listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. The month is still June. The author is still Molly McNett. We have a very special guest in the Shumway studio. Here she is, Madeline Libman. Hello, Connie. How are you? I'm great, but I want to find out how you're doing, and... What brings you to the Shumway studio today? Well, I'm just here today supporting my mother, you know, Molly McNett. We don't have the same last name, but she is my mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She is a writer. I'm very proud of her. My father is Dan Libman. He's been here. Uh, We do share the last name. So there you go. Mm -hmm. That's uh, That's some background about my name. Okay, let's hear some background about you before we begin. Okay, I am going into my junior year at Byron High School. I am kind of a theater nerd. I do a lot of stuff with the theater. Um, I'm currently in a show right now, The King and I. And when and where can we see that? Well, you can see that uh, last weekend of July, first weekend of August um, at the Byron Civic Theater. Byron Civic Theater last week of... Last week of July. Last week of July. Yeah. Okay, I'll be there. Awesome. Until then, could you please introduce your mother, Molly McNett? Yes, my mom is Molly McNett. She's a writer. (laughs) She's really good at it. And today she's going to be reading a story of hers called Sleepy. That's great. Yes. Now, we're going to launch into that just like you said, but will you come back for an interview? Tell us a little bit more about yourself at the end. Yes, of course. Okay, thanks. Let's go. All right. Well, wait, before we go, Molly, is there anything you would like to tell us about Sleepy before we begin? This story is disturbing, (laughs) and so um, it might not be for younger children to listen to. Sleepy, after the story by Anton Chekhov. Nobody knew how old Libby was because she was a slave's child, and, of course, a slave herself, though Libby did not know that, not at first. When Libby was born, no one wrote of it or marked the day. For the first year, her mother tied her to her body with a tea towel. She took her out to the field and worked that way, but sometimes it was too much of a burden, and she propped Libby against a fence post, coming back only to nurse her. Later, Libby heard stories of snakes that crawled over the infants or even bit them as they lay in the fields. But Libby was not scared of snakes, so she did not believe this had ever happened to her. Instead, she remembered sharp sun and orange flowering jewelweed threading through a fence in the creek and a black and white dog that licked her face when it smelled her mother's milk on it. She had a cloudy memory, also, of her own baby laugh a contraction of her belly at that tickling dog's tongue. When she shared this memory with her master's daughter, Elizabeth, with whom she played in the great house, Elizabeth said it was not possible to remember anything prior to the age of six, which sounded very smart. So Livy believed she had made up the memory or had seen it in a dream. Elizabeth was the daughter of Libby's master, and though Libby's mother had been sold, 
Libby was kept as a companion for the white girl. Elizabeth was fond of Libby, sometimes coddling and overfeeding her, and even teaching her to read and to cipher, or, contrarywise, as one does with a doll or a pet, when young, forgetting her for days on end. For the most part, though, Libby was lucky. When she was six, she learned that she was a slave, which meant that she belonged to someone, Elizabeth's father. And when she was seven, she knew that all the other dark people also belonged to him. But their lives were much harder. Elizabeth had straight red hair. Her fair skin was always covered by a pink or purple bonnet, and Libby's aunt sewed identical bonnets for Libby. Elizabeth wanted Libby to sleep nearby, so a lean-to was built alongside the big house with an identical little bed for Libby, just as one might fashion a dollhouse. Near the lean-to was a rabbit hutch. Elizabeth was given a baby bunny at Easter. The rabbit disappeared in June when it was too big to be cute, and a new baby bunny appeared the next Easter, and so on. And Elizabeth was not grieved by the situation. So, too, there would sometimes appear a little steer in a pen or a clean pink pig of sweet disposition. But one day, when the animal ceased to hold Elizabeth's interest, the table at the big house would be set with tender meat. This gave Libby some pause, but she knew she was better off than the other dark children she saw, who lived down the muddy path from the big house in smoky, close little cabins, who looked at her with large and hungry eyes and lived on ash cake and had bare feet, even in winter. Some of these children claimed to be her brothers or sisters, but she hadn't really spoken to them. Libby was fed the best cuts of tender meat and had a real bed to sleep on and real shoes when Elizabeth had outgrown them. Elizabeth was bigger, but they pretended that they shared a birthday. Libby often had dresses made to match Elizabeth's. At her mistress's request, she noticed one day that a baby doll named Lisbeth, who had white hair, also had a set of identical dresses, so they were triplets. Libby also owned two of her own Lindsay Woolsey dresses, which were not owned by Elizabeth or Lisbeth, neither of whom wore Lindsay Woolsey. At some point, one of the dark cousins, whose name was Limus, told her that Libby was not even her own name. It was only a nickname for Elizabeth. Libby asked, Did my mother name me Elizabeth then? And Limus only laughed. When their master fell on hard times, Libby and Limus and all her cousins, aunts, and uncles were sold on the public auction block in Carolyn County, Maryland. Just as had happened with the rabbit and the steer and the young pig, Libby was shipped away without a parting word from her little mistress. The bill listed her as 14 years old. She was strong and her teeth were good. Nobody knew that she could not sweep a floor or bake bread properly, and she fetched $700. The man who bought her 
gave her as a wedding gift to his daughter Sarah, the soon-to-be wife of Giles Hicks, whom Libby was allowed to call Mrs. Sarah. Her new mistress was twenty, with dull gray eyes and a broad, flat forehead, and a face like a moon. Mrs. Sarah came from Chicago. She had never owned a slave, and at first she used Libby kindly. Libby was to live in the house and was tasked with cleaning and cooking and looking after young Mrs. Hicks in general. That is the first part of the story. Libby was the couple's only slave, and she was no longer a doll. Now she must chop wood, start the fire, carry water, empty and clean chamber pots, cook the mush and bake the bread, sweep and scrub floors and wash windows, and so on. Having been a petted companion for many years had left her ignorant of how to do many of these things. To catch the chicken, for example, to hold its neck between the nails, to chop its head off cleanly, to pluck the feathers from its dimpled skin, to clean the mess that ensued. Her hands became rough and sore, and her limbs ached from morning to night. All these things comprised the first difficulty. The second difficulty was that Mrs. Sarah was expecting a baby. For this reason, Libby would be most useful if she too had a baby, so she could be a wet nurse to Mrs. Sarah. To ensure that it happened, Mr. Hicks visited Libby most evenings where she now slept on a hard pallet instead of a bed, and Libby stifled her tears while it happened and cried when it was done. She did not connect this act with having a baby because nobody had told her how babies came into the world. Horrified and ashamed, she carried on with her duties even when she could not keep her own food from coming back up again, which she attributed only to her disgust at the nightly visits of her master. When Libby grew nearly as heavy and swollen as her mistress, she wondered if this thing in the night was how it happened. And then she wondered about pregnancy, and a few things she had overheard about it seemed to make sense. But if it was so... Why didn't Mrs. Sarah notice Libby's swollen stomach and hate her? Instead, she stared past Libby when giving her orders. She spoke as if to a ghost over Libby's shoulder. Mrs. Sarah's baby came early when Libby, too, had become large in her pregnancy and the Lindsay Woolsey had become so small that she'd cut a hole in the front over which she wore an apron. It was not possible for Libby to nurse the new little Hicks baby, of course. She would do that after her own baby was born and her milk came in. But all the same, it was decided that the baby was to sleep with Libby. It would now be Libby's job to make sure that the baby did not disturb Mr. Hicks or Mrs. Sarah. So when it cried... She should simply quiet the baby, or, for the time being, until Libby had her own baby and her own milk, bring it to Mrs. Sarah if a feeding was deemed necessary. Mrs. Sarah 
had a hard childbirth. The baby boy was healthy, but she had torn badly and had no stitches to help her mend, and she was alone except for Libby. Her mother and the midwife had spent their time and gone, and she was still bleeding heavily and confused and ashamed. Those things should be said. And maybe one other thing. Mrs. Sarah did notice that Libby was with child, and though she was young herself and rather sheltered and even dull-witted, she knew how it had come about. Her only defense was to avert her eyes, as Libby had noticed her doing, which was her habit with anyone dark, as Libby was, but also with her own body, for example, when undressing, etc., as well as with her husband's. After the midwife and Mrs. Sarah's mother had gone, it was left to Libby to quiet the baby. She was left in her little chamber, alone with the baby, in his lacy white dress. Soon the child shrieked and cried, and Libby picked it up and tried to calm it. It was a small, darkly pink thing, and its tongue quivered rapidly, and there was an unholy tenor to its cries, and its milky, scabby smell was off-putting to Libby. It was also fragile, too small and too vulnerable, she thought, and here she was entrusted with it, a mistake she thought anxiously, because she, Libby, had been formerly unused to every kind of toil. She seemed always to learn the hard way. She broke a mirror before she learned to properly clean one. Yet, and the baby still howled, its small chest vibrated, and the noise pierced Libby's ear. She had been ordered to stop these cries. She put her small finger near its mouth. For a moment, the cries stopped. The baby's smooth mouth quested and settled on the finger, and its little chest stopped heaving, and all was quiet as it sucked. An owl in the distant trees started its quiet fluting. All was right with the owl. Also, the beasts of the field called to one another in the dusk, mother to calf, bull to cow, and the insects rubbed their tiny wings. Libby was tired, so tired, and so calmed and lulled by nature's music. Oh, the work she had done, waiting on Mrs. Sarah and the midwife and her mother, and this while growing her own being inside her and laying a table, and cleaning, and kneading the bread, and lugging the buckets. Oh, how sleepy she was. Oh, the lull of the night sounds, weighing and coaxing her eyelids. She lay the baby down, and thoughts came and spread out somehow as she rocked there. Images fluttered through her mind. In the dream, she had taken the infant, the one in her belly, and he did not resemble Mr. Hicks, but her brown cousin, Limus. She had swaddled him, and they had gone to the field where she worked in the sun beside her brown cousins. Far away they had gone, down the long rows, the men scything and cradling, the women racketing and binding, 
and all of them laughing there together. When someone poked her arm, someone said so-and-so, for she hadn't named her child yet in the dream, is crying, you'd best give him suck, you'd best go to him. Or what? A snake would come? There in the dream, she heard a baby's cries. The dream's setting shifted, but still Libby did not know which baby or which night it was or how many times the baby had cried and called. It all seemed part of the gauzy dream. She startled awake and then slept again. She tried lifting one very leaden foot, but she was so tired. In the hot field of her dream, her eyelids wanted sleep, and her whole body begged her to stay. So she said to her body, one minute, you can stay and just sink into the field and sleep. Yes, one minute, I'll dream here. A snake, no, that's no good, so of course I'll go to it. To him, I'll go to my son. The dream wound on. Her young mother was there. She was there, Libby, the infant, at the fence post. The snake, too, and then the others came, the dark ones. Mr. Hicks was pushing her head between his legs, and then came the bright yellow sun of that sickening field. Oh, let me sleep, she whispered to the baby, who lay propped there at the fence post at the edge of the field, who would not stop his feverish, nervous tongue-wagging. Help! Limus, Tamer, Jimmy, Major, Judy, Lavinia, Mrs. Sarah, lying beside her husband, heard the cry of the baby for the third time that evening. Why, she whispered, why do I have a slave, Lord? Why, if I still can't sleep? Her husband said nothing. Mrs. Sarah did not know how often a baby should be hungry, but to be awakened three times in one night was too much. James, she whispered, but her husband slept deeply. He always did. James, she said. She's letting him cry again. James. No answer. Two times I've fed him already. Now I'm sleepy, James. It's my turn to sleep. He turned over and grunted at her. It seemed to her that he was annoyed. Annoyed with her, perhaps, for bothering him. She'd agreed to the slave, gotten the slave in order to help with things, asked for a wet nurse until the slave had her baby, and he had refused. This was how he had helped. And the slave was big with his child, too. How can she look at me? Is she proud of it? I let you in my home, Mrs. Sarah whispered, rising, pulling her shawl about her shoulders. Animal! And dripping, still, she went to the fire, 
which had died down, of course, because it had not been tended, which words she said out loud and through her teeth as she picked up a piece of the firewood, a big, solid piece. There was the slave, rounded over, in the rocking chair, her rocking chair, and the baby across the room flailing in its crib, shrieking, making the very nightmarish sound that she, Sarah, was beginning to hear at all times, even when it was quiet. And she saw that dark form, soundly sleeping in her chair, sleeping a comfortable sleep that she, Sarah, had not slept herself that night or any previous recent night, and she lifted the wood and yelled, There, as she brought it down hard, beating, beating the head, now once and again, again, there, and when the head slumped onto the chest, its breastbone, there, Mother, Limas, Tamer, oh, Lord. The slave dropped to the floor with a thud, and Sarah Hicks looked down upon its body, its matted, bloody head. The baby cried on and on. Mrs. Sarah didn't pick up the baby. No, she still clutched her firewood club. She only saw the one who slept forever, then her husband rushing into the room, then the mistake she had made. Molly, that is such a chilling story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it with us. Is it okay to ask a few questions about what is in the minds of these two women, especially? Sure. Let's start with Mrs. Sarah. And I want to know what you were going through when you were writing this postpartum woman. Well, I wasn't going through anything, but I did, you know, I think anyone who's had a child probably has experienced some kind of... um, let down or some kind of physical depression some is worse than others and so I did I did experience that myself but um I didn't plan for that I just sort of came across it as I was trying to write what this woman's experience might have been it it just um sort of wrote its way into the story I guess it wasn't something I had planned but um it it does seem to be part of the experience of of mrs sarah that she she has um a lot of things that would be familiar to anyone who's had a child um like the sleep deprivation sleep deprivation well sleep deprivation they both have it Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) they're both tired they're both sleepy and in fact it's written um it's it's written after the or inspired by the story Sleepy by Anton Chekhov. And in that story, it's the nurse or the servant girl who's very sleepy. She's taking care of an infant, and she ends up murdering the infant, um, strangling the infant so that it will be quiet and she can be allowed to sleep. So this story kind of starts out by leading you in that direction, thinking that that's what's going to happen, and then it's kind of flipped on its head and... um, 
it's the it's the slave who is killed in the end. Mm -hmm. You are an author who is not afraid of your research. So I'm wondering, I know about the Chekhovian influence of this story. What are the other literary influences? Well, I, um, it's part of a larger series that I um, am doing on, uh, that are based on slave narratives, these pieces. And so um, there are a lot of, in a lot of slave narratives and um, um, stories about uh, slaves, there are examples of slaves being treated as pets for child, for white children, little white children. I just finished one, actually. I, I didn't write it, but I just finished reading a story where the um, black children were made, sort of harnessed to a cart and made to run around and give rides to the little white children. And um, they told it. I mean, it was the, the, the former slaves who told this story to the Federal um, Writers Project, project but um, it's, there are many, many examples of that. So this, I sort of made up my own details in this story about the rabbit, about the, the other examples of little pets that were sort of there for a time and given away. So you can see she's treated like a special thing for the girl, but she's not really valuable in any way. And then she's at a disadvantage when she has to actually do real work also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I notice that Libby is Libby, and then she becomes the slave. Mm -hmm. Was that a conscious choice for you to have her name kind of disappear when she became Mrs. Sarah's? Right. The point of view shifts. Mm -hmm. So you have Libby's point of view, and then it shifts to the point of view of, of Mrs. Sarah, uh, or a sort of general point of view that's collective of Mrs. Sarah and the husband sometimes. But Libby's point of view also is silence. So it's almost as if you she goes away and you can't hear from her, but it's sort of representing the larger um, motion of the story. You know, she used to kind of be, she was a little doll, but also a little person. She had a, her own, and she has her own feelings in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And by the end, she's just an object. And she's dispensable, too, which is horrible. But because I wanted to sort of show how that happened, as I saw it, I, 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 did, I made that horrible move. I did that horrible thing. <laughs> and I erased excellent. her in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I love that in a horrible way. I love that you used chunk of wood for the murder weapon mm -hmm. it, it is so in keeping with the times but it's also so organic and horrifying and immediate i just wanted to thank you for that well i think the story the Chekhov story also being having that as a model was helpful mm -hmm. to me because uh, well, he writes so simply, you know. There's not. <laughs> I think without that story, I might have brooded a lot about how to do it. But because he just does it, really, he just does it. It's really simple. This the servant is so tired. Mm -hmm. She's so tired, and the only thing, and she realizes in her stupor that the only thing she could do that to get some sleep would be to strangle this infant. It's terrible, but also she's being horribly mistreated, and keep, they keep asking her to do more and more things when night after night she hasn't had any sleep, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we all relate to that on this little tiny level because we know what it's like. I mean, people who've had young kids, you know, you know what it's like. You start to feel you're going a little crazy when, you, when you're sleep-deprived, you know? 
Yeah, my little child is here. (laughs) Having deprived me of sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And for those of you who have forgotten, Madeline is still here, and we're going to include her in this interview. And I want to start by asking you, when's the time that you, at age 16, have been sleep-deprived? What's it like for a young person to be sleep-deprived? Oh, God. I, I have not been in many situations where I have been forced to be sleep-deprived, but I get very distracted very easily. So if I have a lot of work I have to do, like homework or studying for finals, I'll usually find something to procrastinate until I really don't have, you know, much time to sleep at all. Although I will say now it's sort of shifted. Like last semester it was more of that, and this semester it was more of like, Maybe I should just sleep instead of study, and that'll help me more. Which, I don't know how effective that was, <laughs> but I passed my classes, so I, I think it's okay. I think I ended up being fine. But, yeah, I, I have been sleep-deprived. I've usually... heard that people work through math problems or great theoretical uh, problems in their sleep, and that's considered a form of study. Is that oh. what you're referring to? or? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm referring to being lazy when I have to study and telling myself, don't study, you can just sleep and that'll help you on your test. Really, it's just me telling myself, you know, that's how you're going to help yourself is just by sleeping. But it's also me kind of being like, do I want to study? No, I do not. And then going to sleep. Well, tell us about some of your favorite classes that you enjoy studying. Oh, okay. I have loved English pretty much all of high school. I really love my teachers that I've had so far. I'm like my mom in that I am much better at English than I am at science and math sort of things. So obviously I have enjoyed studying for English things and, you know, sort of things along that line. Like social studies has always been easier for me than biology or chemistry. I liked chemistry though. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's those science math sort of fields have always been more difficult for me. Okay. I think that might be just kind of a writer's brain, you know, since you have, since I have writer parents, mm-hmm. that's just how it is. Right. You have writer parents. Mm-hmm. You're being raised in an artistic household. Yes. And you are an actor and a singer. Yeah. Tell us about what your goals are. Oh, okay. Well, I am planning to go to college for musical theater performance and I'm probably going to try and do something along the lines of learning how to teach that as well, because I would love to be able to teach musical theater as well as perform if I can. I know it's a very risky field to be going into, but I figure I'll just go for it. Yeah. Well, you have my full support. It teaches you to be very resourceful. Yes. So you will always Mm -hmm. have a future. That's what... I watched the Tonys last night. Did you? Yes. Okay. When we're recording this, the Tonys were on last night. I'm so sorry if you missed them. They were really very good. I think year. I know what was probably a highlight for you, yes. but why don't you tell us, just in case oh, I'm wrong. Well, the Tonys were great. Good performances all around. But it was kind of a common theme that it was like, if you are somebody watching at home who really wants to pursue musical theater, you just have to... Um, devote yourself to it and re- believe in yourself because it's possible. That was what sort of the running theme was of the night. So I was just thinking about that today. Mm-hmm. What is your response to the Parkland shootings? You're a young person. You're in high school. 
Parkland Theater Troupe was there last night. Yes. Tell me how you are doing. Tell me what it's like to go to school in this world that we live in. Well, obviously my school has taken more precautions to be more careful, but I am a big believer in stricter gun control laws, and I participated in our walkouts for our school. We did, um, on the anniversary of the Columbine shooting, we had a walkout that day, Mm -hmm. and we actually sent in letters to our representatives about how we as students felt it was necessary for us to have stricter gun laws um, just to protect our schools because it really, as much conversation as we've had since Parkland, it's kind of seemed like it hasn't changed anything. I know nearby there was, there wasn't, I think there was a school shooting though nobody, I wasn't, I don't think anybody was killed, but in Dixon, did you hear about this? Yes, I did. Yeah, so um, I think that, Um, As a student, it's my belief that if anything is going to be changed in our schools, it has to be on a national level. So obviously, I do feel a lot more unsafe in this world. But yeah, I think it's important to be an advocate in these days. So I don't know if you wanted me to get political. No, I love politics. Anything you want to share, we want to hear. Ditto. I really, I'm interested in politics. Okay. Love it. Mm -hmm. Well, there's politics, there's art. There's also religion. Are you willing to share with us your thoughts on religion, yours and the world's? I am a Jew. Mm -hmm. I am a Jewish woman, (laughs) a Jewess, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so my my family's kind of interesting. My dad's Jewish. My mom's not, so I'm half Jewish. But I would say I was raised Jewish, so um, culturally, I'm probably more culturally Jewish than I am religiously, so... For those listeners out there that don't know, it's kind of, when you're Jewish, it's kind of, there's two two sides of things, really. It's, um, Judaism is kind of a culture, and some people consider it to be a race as well as a religion. So my family's not as religious as we are culturally Jewish. So, I mean, we live very far from any other Jewish families. We're the, I'm the only Jewish person at my high school since my brother graduated, you know. (laughs) So that's, uh, I've had an interesting perspective on religion growing up is the only. Have you been mistreated? Um, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I've had incidents, obviously, but I think that people kind of stay away from that. I don't, I kind of scare people with that sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was always, I mean, I was very, when I was in middle school, there was a lot of that happening where people were, using the word Jew as an insult and even, you know, just having a lot of problems with that. And I would get very angry and yell at them a lot. And I kind of felt that administration at my school was either unaware of it or wasn't really doing anything. But it's gotten easier to ignore almost because people have either grown up and matured or they've stayed that way and kept having sort of a bigoted view of things and those group of people or you know those people in high school who end up being sort of I don't want to generalize but bad people you you. can kind of it's easier to distance yourself when you're you know involved in things and have other groups of people you can surround yourself with that are more understanding 
okay. and more accepting. I understand. Yeah. I want to bring it back to your family. Yes. You live with writers. Yeah. As a writer, I know that's tough. So yeah. <laughs> what's it like to listen to your mother read this deep, violent, haunting, chilling story? Yes. yes. Kind of hard to listen to. I actually, this is going to sound bad, but I have not read most of my parents' stories because when it deals with adult things, I mean, you don't want to hear your parents talking about that. You don't want to talk to your parents about that. And it's a very, it's, it's something you don't want to hear from your parents is that kind of honest talk about more adult themes. And my parents don't shy away from that in their stories. So I don't usually want to put myself through hearing about my parents talk about that those subjects. I will say I, I've read a few of them and I have favorites for both of them. But mm-hmm. yeah, I that's something I don't want to, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm a bad child, but I haven't really, I'm not very familiar with their work just because of that. I do think they're very good writers. I enjoy reading their stories, but I stay away from them often. Okay. We totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to bring Molly back. We're going to bring your mother back into the conversation. Oh, hey, Mom. Um, Hello. <laughs> it goes back to when you were, uh, the change from it's Libby's story to referring to her as the slave. And throughout my life, my feelings would get hurt if somebody would refer to my dog Rocky as the dog Mm -hmm. or my cat Blinky as that cat or my husband Jesse as her husband. I always prefer people to say names. And I was wondering if you had any insight about people who refer to animals and people as objects like Libby, the slave, Mm -hmm. and what your thoughts or your reactions or feelings were about that. I never felt much harm in referring to animals that way because they don't know they're being referred to that way. You know what I mean? That Well, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe they do. But I think, I mean, what I tried to do in the story was show that she was being treated as an animal very much the same way as the bunny, the the pig, or whatever, just a temporary pet. There, there, there was no, she wasn't human to them, you know, so... By saying the, and I even, at the the end of the story, she's referred to as it. Mm. Um, So, I mean, animals, we do that to animals as well, right? Sometimes to babies, I guess. I guess I I just wanted to show, the the more that I read about these things, you know, how the actual, like, incidents of how they were treated and everything, it seems to me that the slaves really I'm not saying anything new but they weren't regarded as human beings they were property you didn't even give them a gendered pronoun sometimes you know yeah yeah it is it is I tend to think animals are little tiny humans and I know that I'm wrong you live on a farm in the country you have cattle you have everything from cattle to ducks What are your feelings for animals? And then I want to, and I, I know we've touched on it mm-hmm. in other episodes, but I want to talk about it with you. And then I want to talk about it from your young perspective. What is your feeling about animals in general? We love animals, right, Madeline? Yes. We have a big, we have our, we have a dog we love and yeah. two cats. And, and we also have, I mean, we have chickens also. I, the chickens are a little less familiar to us. I don't know about that. For me, I mean, the chickens are, 
they're they've imprinted on me a little bit i don't know if i've yeah you, you, she can but pick they them kind up of, they follow me around and stuff that's wonderful so i'm attached to them mm-hmm. but yeah our ducks are actually i brought them in because we had we were going to raise ducks in our agriculture class but they ended up being very messy and they just kind of got sent home so her recommendation was that from our ag teacher was that we take two but she had an odd number so she figured since I had chickens it would be fine for me to just take the one and then obviously I have a lot of friends who live in town and they can't really I mean most of the people I know live in town and they can't have you know birds in their yard so I think I I ended up with five ducks from (laughs) other people but they kind of some of them sort of wandered away and they went down to live because we have a creek near our house. So they just sort of went out on their own, some of them. But we had two of them um, have babies together. So now we have, they had eight little ducklings. So now we, we had 10. I'm not really sure where we're at yet. But so I did bring them in, but I don't think I feel the same sort of familiarity okay. as my mom does. Actually, can I tell them about your story when? You were a kid. If you want to. <laughs> um, she's ashamed of this. I don't know why, but um, she wrote a story when she was a child about having ducks. And it was called, um, what was it called? Like A Duck's Life, Love Never Dies. That was the subtitle. Something very corny. Yes, it was Love yeah. Never Dies, I believe. But I had three ducks and they, I just went out to feed them and she's, they had been killed by the neighbor's dog. Uh, <laughs> Big tragedy. So I wrote this totally melodramatic story. Well, yes, it was you know, cute. Like, it was, the, she wrote it when she was like eight or nine, but she, she's like, oh, it's so corny. I hate it. It is very it's my corny. my worst work. It's not part of your work You were when you yeah. were a child. Yeah. You, well, you know how we were talking the other week about YA novels and how you sometimes like, if you read a lot of those, you start writing like that. Yes. That's all I re- read <laughs> in those days was like Nancy Drew or something. Yes. So it was it was dramatic, it was kind of like was, that. It was extremely entertaining, which is not to say that your stories now aren't entertaining, but I think you are discrediting your eight or nine year old. The Titian haired sleuth was shocked to find her yeah. coop overturned. <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, it was really Our terrible. German Shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you do understand the immortal bonds of loving animals yeah, a little bit. It's we love animal. our animals. Oh, for sure. Our dog and our cats we love. Yeah. Deep, yes. It takes her longer to come around. I Because my dad and I brought home a cat. It was uh, over a year ago. But is this beer cat? Was, no, this is pony keg. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not his name. But um, he, yeah, mom did not like him at first. I understand that too. She came around. She likes all of them now, I think. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, Dan Clastad writes for the ear. Sharon Nesbitt Davis writes for the heart. Bahia El Chavez writes for her younger self. I forgot to ask your husband, Dan Libman, but we suspect it's for the funny Mm -hmm. bone. Uh, Are you willing to answer the question, who or what do you write for? Yeah, I I think I, I write to... For myself, really. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't consider other people, but I'm, I really feel that when I write, I'm investigating things that have bothered me or that I'm working at. For example, these um, stories based on slave narratives, I don't really know what I'm after, but there's something bothering me that I'm trying to figure out through these stories. And so it's really 
it's for myself, you know. I write for myself. To that, I have to ask, do you know what it was that was bothering you when you wrote this or were inspired to write this story, Sleepy? Oh, this one. Well, I think it's just that massive inhumanity that you come across in all of these examples, true, mm-hmm. true stories that you read, you know, mm-hmm. and where that comes from. It doesn't come from a stereotype. It comes from a real human being, which is why I tried to make Mrs. Sarah also a human being. She's a human being who treats another human being as an animal, <laughs> who kills another human being, and yet it's not coming from... She also is herself a human being, so... Good. Yeah. Um, and now I'm going to ask you, who do you perform for? I think I would say I perform for my role model. So the people that I learned from, like I learned how to perform from, I just want to show that I actually learned and have gained something from it. So yeah, I I would say I perform for my role models. Okay, very good. This is the question I ask every week. And that is, is there anything I haven't touched on that you would like to talk about? And this goes for you too. We're going to start first with your mother. Molly McNitt. Well, it's a, this doesn't seem like the right time to say something silly. Sure you it know, is. After this serious story. If you drink coffee, you get a buzz from that coffee that lasts about an hour. But if you have a weak tea and you drink it all day, if you want to be writing, for example, <laughs> then you get a mellow lift that will keep you going for a longer period of time. And I actually, you know, I mean, I've actually given this advice to writing students because they're so interested in the nuts and bolts of how to write. And it is hard to get yourself to sit there. So that's my advice. Okay, last week was wear a helmet. This week it's weak (laughs) tea. Try switching your coffee out for weak tea. Okay. And drink it all day. You know, as long as you want to be writing, you'd be drinking that. Love it. All right, what would you like to share with your listeners? Okay, well, I think there's probably a lot of people out there who, you know, think that think of people my age as sort of obsessed with technology and always looking at screens. So I would say as a teen, my advice to other teens is limit your screen time to 8 to 9 hours a day. Okay? <laughs> Just cut yourself not, off. You need to have a little time away. That's my advice. Okay, that is Because I don't want everybody to think I'm the stereotype who just looks at their phone all day. I limit it. Eight to nine hours. Well, I admire your discipline. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It it was difficult to get here, but yes. (laughs) Um, Will you be able to come back next week, tear yourself away from that phone, sacrifice a couple of minutes? Can you come back? Just... Share a little bit more of yourself with us I'll next week. I have to week. talk to my agent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, thank you for inviting me oh, back. It's our yes. pleasure. And oh. Ms. McNett, will you please come back and share Mama with us? Sure. I'd love to. Wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Connie. The Guilty Pleasures Podcast is made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, Rockford Area Arts Council, The Shumway, and you, our listeners. Subscribe to Guilty Pleasures on iTunes or Google Play, or download podcasts from our website, rockfordwritersguild.org. Email feedback to editor at rockfordwritersguild.org. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Rockford Writers Guild, and Instagram and Twitter at Guilty Pleasures. Thank you for listening. This is your producer, Jesse Koontz. Now go write.